1: My crypto journey, as many of you know, started back in 2012, when I'd gone around the world trying to start the world's safest bank, having seen Europe blow up its banking system, the government's almost defaulting, hot on the heels of the financial crisis. And I knew that we needed a different answer. In that process, a friend of mine, Emil Woods, who was one of my Global Macro Investors subscribers, that's my kind of high-end research service that I've been writing for the last 19 years, Emil Woods kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, you need to look at Bitcoin. And the moment I saw it, I kind of understood that there was two component parts of this. One was the cryptocurrency itself, which was interesting, but also blockchain technology and how it could solve many of the problems of the world's financial system. I wrote the first ever, I think, macro strategy piece on Bitcoin back then and started investing. At Global Macro Investor, Every year we have a round table. It's magic. It's like a whole bunch of old friends who've been, most of my subscribers have been there for a decade or some some of them two decades, get together and we talk macro, we talk ideas, we share some wine, we have some laughs, and we hatch plans of doing stuff together, businesses, co-investing, all sorts of stuff. I got Emil Woods to present about Bitcoin. And periodically he came along and presented at those roundtables was Dan Tapiero, and so he's been part of my crypto journey, and I'm part of his. And we've learned to do the hard work and to really, really dig in and get the full macro understanding of the space. We're neither of us a technologist, but we have thirty years of macro. We understand how economies work, we understand how markets work, we understand market psychology, and we understand opportunity sets and secular trends and direction of travel. And so Dan and I have always been kind of updating each other on this. And I think many people famously remember Dan coming to me on Real Vision back in 2018, I think it was, or 1918, saying, hey, listen, you need to look at Bitcoin again. And I had sold out of my Bitcoin position in 2017 into the big rally. And Dan single-handedly got me back in. And, you know, we've been interviewing lots of people on Real Vision. Um, Crypto's been part of Real Vision since 2014, from our very first video. And Dan single handedly got me across the line to get back in and focus again. So I didn't buy immediately. I bought back in 2020. Um, And Dan became very well known in the crypto space for being another one of the macro crypto guys. Myself, Dan, um, Dan Moorhead, and a few others have been there, Alan Howard and others. And so... It's an utter pleasure always to sit down with Dan. He's a really good friend of mine. Uh, We follow each other's journey. We help each other out. And, you know, Dan is up to some truly brilliant stuff. And he's just such a great thinker. So I think where we are in the crypto market is we're in late spring. And late spring is when it starts to get really interesting. It's not a one-way bet. We will have periods of consolidation or, you know, sharp sell-offs. It's very normal to see a 35% correction in a crypto bull market but spring is just the start we've got summer to go and even into fall when the weather's still good before things turn again so we've got a couple of years ahead of us of life-changing opportunities in one of the biggest macro trends of all time and what's great is how people still don't yet get it and they don't yet believe in it and they don't yet understand it and that means we get to be first even if you're the class of 2012, like me, or you're the class of 2023, you will still be early, and the opportunity is ahead. This is what Dan and I think is the big macro bet, maybe the biggest macro bet of all time. Anyway, let's sit down with Dan Tapiero and talk crypto. Join me, Raoul pal as I go on a journey of discovery through the macro, crypto and exponential age landscapes. In The Journeyman, I talk to the smartest people in the world so we can all become smarter together. Dan Tapiero, how the devil are
0: you? Raul, good to be back. It's been a while.
1: That's right, we're, we're both in the Caribbean, different parts of the Caribbean.
0: Yeah, it's, it's beautiful here at Dorado Beach. Very happy to be here, Uh, especially during the winter. Exactly right. Exactly right. Now,
1: listen, I think what we'll we'll do is we'll we'll first talk macro, as ever, to kind of level set. Then we'll talk digital assets, where we are, and then we'll talk what you're specifically up to, because that's always a nice kind of journey for people to go down. So you and I seem to have been the only people who actually thought this was a stupidly disinflationary environment, And we've both been yelling about it. Talk talk me through your macro view.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I have to say um, I was right about the trajectory of inflation this year, but wrong on uh, interest rates. Same. (laughs) You know, look, I think this year uh, you and I have both been right on inflation, but frankly wrong on interest rates. Um, I think the Fed has made a, a terrible mistake by not following their own uh, dictate uh, that policy works with a lag, and usually an 18-month lag. So in my 30-year career, and I'm sure in yours, uh, we've never experienced a Fed that was responding month to month uh, You know, as a result of uh, CPI readings or employment readings. It's always been, always, policy works with a lag about 18 months, 24 months. And so I think they turned extremely aggressive tightening at the absolute peak of the CPI. It was right at the 7% uh, print or whenever that was. And CPIs come down just about every month. And so, um, you know, while we were right about uh, inflation, uh, they kept tightening. And just recently, of course, the 10-year broke out to the upside. So I think our view that broadly this tightening will be disinflationary uh, was right even up to I would say you know three and a half four percent now there's a risk that it could actually slip into deflation to my view on this because i 've been
1: observing exactly the same thing this macro breakage between what the fed normally do and what rates normally do and my view is the fed aren 't stupid so they did it on purpose and you know I talk about this debt refi cycle and the only way of doing that is to have deflation so then they can get rates lower and they can use the balance sheet i kind of feel like it was purposefully orchestrated
0: i, I don't Anything? know well that seems you know too fancy i mean honestly I, I i you know it doesn't really i mean look that's possible but i think it's a bit too fancy uh, in a sense i'm i'm not sure that they think that they have uh that much control um you know, the way they acted, at least in in my view, it feels to me like they've been acting from a position of weakness, uh, not strength. They've been very reactive. This hasn't been planned. Um, so look, as far as I can remember, this is, I mean, I say the worst Fed that uh, we've, we've lived through, but I really think um, they didn't tighten soon enough, then they panicked and tightened over-tightened, decided to over-tighten at the peak, and now they're staying tight. Um, Now, look, that doesn't preclude them from potentially shifting again, you know, in March or April when the data becomes even more clear. But (laughs) I, I just think that, look, if there were ever a case to be made against centralized monetary policy, I mean, think about it, a handful of people sit around a round desk in D.C. and make the monetary policy for the world, uh, especially in a world which is moving towards a decentralized uh, framework, um, you know, driven by AI, and you've talked about this in your monthly letters, uh, it's such an interesting, uh, intense, vast uh, world that it is anachronism to think that you've got, you know, whatever, eight, 12, 70-year-old guys sitting around looking at the PMI and the payroll number and waiting for the headline CPI, you know, to make a decision. Uh, it really seems, especially given how much time we spend in this new digital asset ecosystem, it, it does seem really antiquated. It feels a bit ludicrous, really. You know, it's a, you know, looking at
1: data releases month by month when there's real-time data everywhere, everybody knows what's going on and they're all sitting there Shuffling around the latest inflation report like it's a
0: surprise. I mean, it's the weirdest thing. I know. And you get a 0.1 uh, surprise to the downside, and everyone is cheering, and it just it seems, you know. So I, I think that's one of the reasons I've been bullish on the stock market. Um, you know, we had that peak in July, we bottomed in October, uh, bullish on crypto really since Q4 of 22 within about a week of the FTX collapse, uh, I was very bullish on Twitter uh, in the funds. I put $120 million to work uh, within the next few weeks. So I think that was the low in price. Again, we talked about this the last time, but it was a very obvious bullish divergence. You know, you had uh, the worst possible news you could imagine with Sam Bankman free FTX collapse, and yet Ethereum couldn't make a new low in price. So just old time trader, very obvious, uh, you know, the moment the uh, selling had dried up. We then spent the next six to nine months uh, going sideways with an upward bias. And I think the sentiment low was cheap sometime in the summer on the Gensler attack and the, the suing of Coinbase, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're into the next leg. Uh, I would say the, the second inning of this nine-inning bull market in, in crypto. So I think we would be much higher in price if the two-year were not at 5%, um, I think the high in the two-year yield was made, just like last week. And I mean, there's if you look at the, the like a three or four-year chart, it's just started to drop. And I, I think we'll probably be around 3% next year. What confuses most people is we say they've over-tightened,
1: which is probably recessionary, one-way shape or form, whether it's a deep recession or not, doesn't really matter. And people are like, well, we're going to get another crash. And I'm like, no, 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 that happened last year. It was priced in. That happened in. last
0: year. Yeah, we, we priced all of that in in Q422. And this is something interesting. I I think, and we may have even discussed this before, but I think the smartest players in the tradfi traditional markets today are the tech and uh, technology-focused PMs. And I think that the... Um, most intensely negative Fed for the Nasdaq got priced in over a year ago. And the bond market, which in my view, you know, I don't want to say there's no intelligent life forms left there, but in the 1980s and and 90s, the smartest guys in the world. I mean, you know, the Mike Vranos is the, you know, the, 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 the very, the smartest guys um were in the bond market, the math guys from Caltech. Um, you really, you know, we didn't have tech, essentially. I mean, it was just venture uh, in the 70s and 80s. And, and so, you know, the, the, the number of players, especially in the 90s, like really great investors who focused on the bond markets exclusively, think, I mean, it was a huge number. Um, I don't think the bond markets have as great an ability to forecast and discount the future as the people on the NASDAQ uh, do. And it's a bit of a strange thing because I'm not saying that the the bond market is wrong all the time. I just think that they're too close to the historical data series, whereas the NASDAQ investors are already looking out three and five years. They're the ones who have the ability, uh, I think, to more properly discount uh, the future, which is that's something you hear, but I, I mean I remember like I don't know anyone really left in the bond markets. Maybe you do. I mean who you know, but you remember the intense the Solomon Brothers guys, the you know, all oh, of those they, were, they were, were
1: amazing. They were amazing. they were the legends of the industry. There's
0: nobody yeah. there now. No. And you know and, and and it makes sense. I mean the rates were zero for basically for, for ten years or real rates. So there wasn't you know, great opportunity. Um, and so people, the smartest people always drift to where the opportunity is the greatest to make the most amount of money. And, um, you know, that's why I think, especially being in the world we're in with digital assets, the smartest guys I have ever, ever, I've ever are in this space. Now, I don't think that they're very good at discounting the future. The younger guys, many of them, they're not markets guys. Uh, There's a lot of retail involvement, um, but I certainly do not believe in the bond market's ability to price a future, like even a three, four year future uh, well. And so I think that the NASDAQ discounted the worst case for the Fed a year ago. The bond market just did it two weeks ago.
1: And my view is that Russell 2000 is the same. It's living in present-day macro. And Stan Druckenmiller always says this, you need to live 6 to 18 months in the future. You can't live in present-day macro, but the Russell 2000, the bond market, the oil market, the copper market are all living in today's macro picture, which is bizarre.
0: Yeah, I I think it has to do with where are the risk-takers out there? You know, it's the pension funds that are in the bond market these days uh, you know, they're not in, uh, they're not in the, you know, cutting edge, uh, crypto digital assets, uh, or even in, even in the NASDAQ seven, I mean, how many, I mean, how many people out there are, are continue to say, Oh, the market's terrible. It's only these seven stocks. Well, it's because those seven stocks uh, are unbelievable and they're completely dominant. They have no c- competitors, uh, anywhere in the world. Like. Microsoft, Amazon, these are non-replicatable businesses. Uh, you can't just pop up one day in France or in Indonesia or somewhere and all of a sudden build that. And so we forget there's thousands and thousands of employees, they're very well organized. Um, they are the ones that are going to be able to pivot to an unknown future. It's not some utility or some manufacturing company in Tennessee or whatever it is, right? I think the world really, you know, really has changed. And I, I, we talk about this a lot. We see it in crypto because it's the most age sort of demarcated market or sector I've ever been involved with. You know, people under 35, all of them understand that this is the future. And people over, you know, 60, 65, you know, they still don't quite understand it. They don't believe it. Um, And, you know, on Twitter or X, There's a lot of talk about like doing the work, right? Doing that deep dive. Now, you've been in this space since 2012. I mean, you've had a great call, maybe even before, I don't remember, you've had a phenomenal call on on the space. Um, But you've done a huge amount of work, as have I. And it's not just, oh, it's going up, we're interested in it. I mean, we think this is, you know, I think probably the most important uh, global macro development, certainly, I, I don't know, in the last 50 years, I mean, since all out, uh, even more than securitization. I mean, I think it's its much bigger than anything we've we dealt with. You know, I took, like you,
1: you know, when you see the landscape all going towards one way, and it, for me, it was like technology and crypto, and then you just look at crypto and it just outperforms everything. It just coalesces all of your focal point into one thing you know and I went like you deep down this rabbit hole I've probably created more macro understanding of crypto than anybody else by thinking and building right and you know you've gone massively into the space I mean you kicked me back into the space in 2018 or 19 I hadn't given up on it I just wasn't focused on it and you were like you know you were pretty close to uh that was I can't remember that was like June, 2018, and by October at bol- the bottom.
0: And then Q1, 19, it was really pounding the table. And I remember you were concerned about Tether. And I kept saying, and I can remember this clearly because I said, well, the value of the space at the time, I guess was around 300 billion, like total value in the space. And I think Tether was like 20 billion or something like that. or And so I said, maybe it was, t- I, I can't remember, but I thought, okay, well, if Tether goes to zero, Like, so what? It's a drop in the bucket. It was sort of the same big, like, macro value analysis with uh, FTX. I mean, I thought the maximum total loss in FTX, like, the next day would have been, it was like $10 billion. But the space is worth over a trillion, like, the value of all the cryptocurrencies and all the equity in the space. So, who cares about $10 billion, right? It was just the sentiment. the, the, there's a lot of emotion, uh, human emotion, that comes to play in this space. I, I have to say, because there aren't as many professionals, like you know, old-time portfolio managers, people who have gotten crushed many, many times. I mean, I've had you know tremendous number of ups and downs over the years, right, in the traditional markets. So I don't really have much emotion, you know, when it comes to uh, analyzing. Uh, the markets. But if you're a 27 year old guy and you've never been involved in, you know, a hundred different markets and, you know, you're, you're feeling rich one day and, you know, you're buying a Lambo and then, you know, uh, a year later you're suicidal because you've lost 80% of your money. Um, So, you know, thankfully we get to avoid that. And I mean, I saw recently, you know, the charts also help us because it gives us a sense of, you know where the market is pricing. You have had a phenomenal call on Solana. I guess we can talk about that later. But I think you know the fact that, and this was in your monthly GMI, um, that I think everybody should be getting. I don't know. I don't know how anybody in crypto does not get the monthly GMI. Um, I'm really proud of that, Actually,
1: it's, it's a bloody yeah. good publication. I've got it. Gone it's, there.
0: it's really, it's really good. But you said, look, the moment in Solana at twenty dollars had equivalents to you of Ethereum. Uh, at what was the price?
1: 2018 or? low, yeah. which was right. $80. And the
0: same thing, Bitcoin. You know, at but you would mentioned the prices, right? The beginning of the previous bull markets, and so people, you know, should understand that when you're making that kind of comment, um, it's like it's the residue of 30 years of analyzing markets. It's not like you're some kind of cheerleader for the space, like we. No one, we don't have that. I don't care about cheerleading, right? We just, we want to get it at the right time, notice when the market is cheap, have a view about the future that others don't have, and then execute it, right? It's not a, a cheerleading thing, right? No. And also you and I learned a new trick, which was
1: that we realized that this was a long duration asset and you need to have a longer time horizon than was traditionally macro. Yeah, And we both had to learn that. You know, you have to learn it. It's hard. But you learn it. And you learn, as you're doing now, is if you've got a long duration, you should be buying in the sell-offs and not selling. And, you know, I I watch what you do uh, with 1RT versus most VC investors. They're like, they're waiting for prices to go to highs before buying because they don't understand the
0: macro. It's crazy. I know, I know, they, you know, they're not market oriented people. And I think that that's what's so interesting is that our space, uh, it really is a market. And I say often on X that it's really the only truly free market out there. You know, what uh, you know, we've undergone tremendous volatility, massive creative destruction every, you know, two, three years. And there's been no government intervention there's been no centralized authority coming in it really is a free market. and i'm a i'm a free markets guy from the 80s and 90s you know that all came out of the reagan era um and every effort to sort of tamper uh with the markets to me sends wrong signals and you know i think that's probably why we're in the position we're in now with the federal deficits and you know the the old fiat system um there's just too much interference right like i think you and i both agreed so somewhere in the early 2000s 2010 i'm not sure the pricing signals that we used to look at in the 90s and 2000s that were more pure they're sort of they've gone away right they the the, the the price the, the, the market doesn't price uh, assets based on, I think, value. it's You have all these different actors and there's politics involved. So I really appreciate that. I know like that's not something that people talk about much. Also, Dan, the other thing I wrote about in GMI this month is like, I'm trying to get
1: people to understand what this is. So you go to a traditional asset allocator. This is what you and I grew up with as emerging markets. It's where you can make money. This, you know, I wrote this article about crypto land and fiat land, and how the ETF is just a trade agreement between these two different worlds, and that crypto land is growing faster. The population's growing faster. Productivity's higher. So obviously, yeah. it attracts capital over time. And I think you know, emerging markets have gone nowhere for over a decade now—some two decades, some three decades—and you're like. Here is an emerging market that's growing faster than any other emerging market you've ever seen. That old emerging market allocation should really be a crypto allocation. That's what I'm starting to get my head around.
0: Yeah, yeah, but I, I think crypto is bigger than emerging markets. The, I know the this is market, really for like,
1: the this is for the traditionalists to try yeah. and get them to understand. It's much bigger, obviously, because this emerging market takes over the world.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, the emerging market playing was also a, a value play. These countries were starting at zero. Um, you know, you had, uh, you remember those uh, Polish bonds in the early '90s, and you know, these are countries that were in, in communist, and um, there were no economies. China was a zero. I think it had in the late '90s. China's GDP was one trillion dollars. I mean, just a little bit larger, I think, than the size of Canada. Right. So. These countries didn't exist in an economic sense. And so I think that was catch up. But isn't that the same thing?
1: It's It's not the the same thing. thing.
0: This is the application of math and computer science and, you know, game theory and sociology, psychology um, to, I think, the entire world of value. So it's much bigger than just some countries, you know, catching up. Um, and, and growing. It's just that it's there's a complexity here that's difficult uh, to understand, and you really need to, to spend a lot of time um, to focus and understand why it's such an important, I call it invention. I mean, this is the first time we did that first interview in the middle of 2019. Security truth machine. Yeah, and I, I think that's really what it is. What's a bit strange is that you know you have people in positions of authority in the U.S. like Gensler, who are you know actively attacking. So it's not that it's even a neutral. He doesn't talk about all the benefits ever. I mean, it's absurd. Um, so now we have other countries around the world that have done the work: Singapore and Hong Kong and the UAE. London is moving ahead a little bit, and um, I think. That businesses are drifting there, uh, that are in the digital asset universe, and people are trying to stay away from the U.S. For now, I think it's it's just for now. Um, it is curious to me. Do you have a do you have a well? I think my mental. I,
1: like, yeah, my mental model for this is the fact that London started the FX market right in the '60s because the U.S had protectionism once it got off the gold standard or the 70s. Right. And then the UK said, well, everybody needs to now swap currencies with each other. We'll set it up in London. The US was being restrictive. They had capital controls. So that London took that over. Then became the lending market, which was the euro dollar market. The US stopped their banks doing it. So the UK took it, created the biggest market the world has ever seen. Then same thing happened with derivatives because we had the CME and CBOT in the US. The UK changed the bank regs to allow OTC derivatives and the swaps market came, which became $1.4 quadrillion. The US right. missed that all. So if you remember, you and I would generally meet in London in past days. Yeah, of Everything was in London. The FX market, the, the the derivative market, everybody was there. Goldman's headquarters, sure, was was um, in New York, but yeah. the intellectual capital was all in London. So were the profits. And I think we're just going to repeat the same thing. I think the U S is a bit nervous about its reverse reserve currency status and how it fits in with this world. So London,
0: I'm not really there. I like, I don't think that there's anything that's really going to challenge the dollar in the Fiat world. I I don't either. I don't either, but they seem scared of it. I know. Well, the dollar has gone down. If you look at, you know, it the other way, 99% against Bitcoin in the last 10, 11 years. I mean, people have lost huge amounts of purchasing power um, who have not moved into this world. And again, that's the risk I think of the TradFi people of not moving in is that their wealth, the value that they have continues to erode. Um, And we've talked about this again before that I think that instead of a debt jubilee or debt um, problem, what happens is, is that debt just very slowly sits in the traditional world and devalues versus everything in the digital world. And so you have the digital asset ecosystem that's debt free. And so it's a pure market, it's clean. This right now is the beginning of the normie traditional corporate world adoption of Web3, blockchain, crypto, digital assets, whatever you want to call it, it's happening now. At the end of the last bear phase, we didn't have hundreds of companies like trying to figure out how to like incorporate NFTs into their, you know, business model. Now you've got Adidas and LVMH and Nike and all these giant companies on that end. You've got um, Franklin Templeton and Fidelity and BlackRock. I mean, it's the buying hasn't happened yet, but they've put down their stake and they've said to the people in Washington, "Listen, We control trillions of dollars of assets. Okay, we want an ETF. All right, so that's great, but that's just a conduit for capital. Can you imagine what's going to happen when the people at those institutions understand that that is just the very beginning of what's so interesting about this world, right? Just buying Bitcoin and Ethereum, I mean, big deal, right? Like, that's great, but it seems they don't, have any greater conception for what's going on, which I would call is the digitization of all value that exists in the world. At some point, we'll sit on a blockchain somewhere in this D8, as I call it, right? And that, that's where we're going. Hey
1: everyone, we're gonna take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. You know when people ask me what do you think of the structure of the bull market that lies ahead my view is probably similar to yours it's everything everywhere all at once because we it is built,
0: and it's building I know I completely agree completely it's agree. like
1: we've done we know we're going to digitize finance and everybody's working on it all of the big shops plus all the private sector we know the nfts and their applications you know and with the Solana compressed them in NFTs, means you can make millions of them for cheaper than printing a ticket. So that's ticketing. You know, there's all of these structures that are all going to come together because everyone's been building. I mean, you see it because you've been investing in this. Most yes. people can't see it until it's in front of their faces, but we all
0: know what's coming because everybody's been working on this shit forever. Yeah, and it's still early. I mean, honestly, I- I'm surprised at you know how early. Um... But, but it's still early. I mean, the space today, and this is incredible, has, I would say, between two and $2.5 trillion of value in it. So again, I see big, big macro, here's Five with hundreds of trillions of dollars, you know, total wealth north of 500 trillion. And then over here is the digital asset ecosystem. All the cryptocurrencies now are worth about 1.5 trillion With one one trillion of it being Bitcoin and Ethereum, plus a little bit. And then I I think we have another 500 to 800 billion in the value of the equity of the businesses in this world. Um, And as you know, that's what we've invested in. We've invested in 24 of the, I would call mid to late stage, so not venture of growth, uh, at the growth stage of companies in the space. Again, you know, I, am not a venture uh, guy. I, it's very hard uh, for me to, you know, make specific bets based on the quality of the code of one chain versus the other. Uh, We're really looking to invest in companies that are 50 million in revenue and greater. And so we've built this portfolio now that I think is a great proxy for the space. And we're in the middle of raising our fourth, uh, my, you know, fourth fund. Um, And the opportunity said today, I mean, I is I don't want to say it's never been better, but the pricing has come in tremendously uh, for the equity of some of the businesses that are really core to the ecosystem, like Consensus. You know that is uh, you know the, the the stock trading in the secondary uh, is is much lower than their previous rounds, and it's not that the company is worth less; it's that there are distressed sellers still. There are hedge funds out there, individuals, there are people who need cash, right? Like I, we did a little bit of secondary the other day uh, for somebody who needed money to pay their taxes. So, you know, because there are younger people in this space and they're leveraged up, right? They have everything in this space. And so some of them got a little far out over their skis And so tremendous opportunity for us also to lead um, the next rounds for many of these companies. But don't you notice, to go back to the point I made earlier, there's
1: almost nobody else doing this. It's like so bloody obvious the timing is so good,
0: and yet none of the VCs are deploying capital. It's crazy. I think that the fear in the marketplace, you know, the fear of the markets, the fear of the Fed, the fear of Gensler, I mean... I like, but I think it it, it crescendoed uh, about two months ago. But I think that that's what kept people uh, on the sidelines. The venture, look, venture to me is very different. If you're investing in the seed or early rounds in this space, you have a tremendous amount of risk, but you also have potentially tremendous upside. You know, we want to invest in companies that we think can make five to ten x over the ten year life of the fund, and so this concept of duration that you talked about is very important. Um, I think we both learned trading uh, and managing portfolios in the macro old macro world that, you know, you can have very fidgety investors. Uh, you can have a great macro idea and your macro idea could go up five X, but if it goes down 30%, you know, in a three or four month period, you get blown out and then you lose the trade. And, You know, everyone comes screaming and you don't know what you're doing and then you end up being right. Anyway, so, you know, after having experienced that a bunch of times, uh, you realize that if you really want to build wealth in this space, you have to buy something that you can hold for 10 years. Whatever it is that you like, I'm not saying, oh, you should come into my fund, you do what you like. I said, what you know, whatever it is that you're comfortable holding, Um, And so the structure of the fund um, is such that I don't want to say it's been impervious to the bear phase, but we've had a very little uh, drawdown, Um, very little because the portfolio is diversified. We have companies that are core infrastructure that continue to make money. You can see that some of the areas, I call it underneath the hood, have continued to grow tremendously. I mean, stable coins, uh, I think last year settled. Uh, $8 trillion of value, that's up from zero uh, three years ago. And I think we're going to get close to that number again this year. The transaction value versus uh, PayPal and Visa. Uh, and people are always shocked to see that there's more uh, value uh, of the transactions, right, than in, um, because Visa uh, and PayPal will do many, many very small transactions. and. You can get a 300 500 million dollar trade on bitcoin right so um, the value that's been transacted is actually greater today most people aren't aware of that you could you can show that if you like so i you know i believe and i've said this before bitcoin is the invention is the core asset uh the, the code is the core asset of the space ethereum i think now has a cheap network effect and is the layer the that many developers, you know, prefer uh, building on top of. And you can see there are more and more developers coming to the ecosystem, even through the bear phase, when Bitcoin, Ethereum, about 50 to 70%, developers continued to move into the space. And so now that those two are the core assets, um, you know, I think you've made, you're making the case now. And I think it's probably right that Solana is the next one, maybe two years from now to achieve network effect. Um, and, but on top of all that are many different companies, many different businesses, many different, um, you know, iterations of what happens in the old world, right? So even look at the U S banking system, right? I think that that is, you know, collapsing on itself, right? Slowly contracting there are too many banks. Um, and it's, you know, slowly payments and savings um, you know, I like this concept that Bitcoin is a savings technology. Uh, I, I think it, it, it is right custody, all of these different, um, areas within the overall ecosystem. And I, I showed you, uh, I, I have a, also a, a slide that is, it's super proprietary, but I mean, I'm going to share it here with you. It's a map of the digital asset ecosystem that we share with our investors. And it's a, yeah, that's fascinating. It's a very, it is a map. You won't see that anywhere else. I've never seen anything like it. We've come up with it because when we make investments, we want them to be leveraged to the growth in the overall ecosystem. And so in that way, during bear phases, you know, we we have some stability, right? We're not just, um, you know, the the funds had very minimal drawdowns in 22 and 23. You know, even though we had some companies in the portfolio, like the- the It's quite funny,
1: I bumped into Stevie Cohen. I was at his box at the Mets. Is that
0: and, right? Um, okay. Went, we were chatting
1: about you, and typical Stevie, he's like, "Yeah, I bet he's lost his ass in that in that whole digital asset VC." I'm like, "No, I think he's fine." He's like, "He must be taking pain." I'm like, "Stevie, it's VC. There's no mark to market."
0: Or well, it's growth. It's really growth equity. We, I really don't think about us. No, as but, yeah, key. growth equity. I mean, but there's a still. little bit of VC there. Well, you know, I. I worked for Steve for 10 years and so, you know, we were made friends and... uh, Yeah,
1: he's very fond of you, but it was funny. First thing he did was, like, he's got to be losing money. I'm like, Steve. He's
0: he's very competitive. Uh, Let's just say that. He's very competitive. Um, You know, he's one of the great, certainly, business people in that hedge fund business, you know, of all time and probably, I mean, in terms of just being a pure equity trader, uh, I think he does less of that now, but phenomenal uh, hit ratio. He's like a sniper going in, but he's very short term. I mean, he doesn't, you know, he he doesn't, you know, trade uh, or hold investments or think about things on a five year, uh, at least for the portfolio. Um, so it's a very different outlook, but that's, that's exactly why I was there sitting next to him for five years because I had a very different outlook and mentality, um, you know, and I, I think that, you know, I think that was valuable to him because he just, he doesn't think in that same way. Now, is my way better than his? Probably not. He's accumulated, I don't know, whatever it is, 20 billion or whatever it is and uh, and I'm not. So maybe his way is better. Uh, but you know what? We, we don't get to choose that. We I think we, should, we 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 all move towards our core strengths and competencies.
1: Here's a question. As you're going around the world, because you've been traveling a lot this year, you know, raising for this fund. what? kind of investors are you seeing now is it still family offices predominantly or are you starting to see finally the you know the institutions coming in
0: yeah so i would say that for most of the year and again i've never traveled more uh than i have this year uh crazy crazy travel schedule but mostly uh larger family offices but in the last three weeks All of a sudden, uh, people who had said they would either come into the fund uh, in January or who were, you know, you know, crypto, blockchain, whatever, not a priority, all of a sudden uh, want to have meetings, and so it actually just started uh, in the last few weeks, and I mean, you know, very, very large institutional people that haven't, okay. This is important that haven't invested in the space at all. So that is new. Well, uh, we have, as you know, we have some institutions in the funds, Texas teachers and the Michigan, um, you know, um, MERS pension fund. And so we have a few uh, of those, but the U S institutions are still nowhere. Uh, meaning that 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 their their level of understanding is not great. Um, they're not really interested. I'm talking, you know, endowments, pensions, you know, the tens of trillions of dollars out there. Maybe with BlackRock and Franklin Templeton and Fidelity, maybe a year or two from now they'll start to, you know, when Bitcoin's at eighty thousand, then they'll. I know, I I know it. However. The larger foreign institutions now, uh, you know, they because there was never really much of a bear market in sentiment, okay, in 23. So remember, the bottom, the market bottom in Q4 22. But, you know, I was in Japan. I went for to Tokyo for WebEx, you know, 15,000 people there. The prime minister of Japan spoke. I was in Singapore at 2049. You really you could get run over uh, by people like it was a stampede. I mean, 10,000 people there with 400 side events. Um, you know, in Dubai, every other week there's another you know crypto, web blockchain conference. Uh, I'm going for Abu Dhabi Finance Week uh, at the end of the at the end of the month, um, and then heading to Hong Kong for uh, another week. So. It just, it, it it really never stopped overseas. And it's just the US press and the drumbeat from the SEC and, um, and the Fed, it was a combination of the Fed overdoing it, um, scaring people on liquidity.
1: Are you finding it's more Asian led or are you seeing interest in
0: Europe as well? No, I, it's Middle East. Um, remember, going back to our old days a little bit the Middle East currencies are all just pegged to the dollar. So their savings are like essentially 90 plus percent in dollars. Every time they, every barrel of oil is in dollars. If they convert it to dirham, it's still in dollars. So, you know, think about the accumulated wealth of that entire region. They, they need to diversify a little bit, right? So they understand intuitively that this is an alternative. It's very different. Asia is more focused on blockchain gaming. I mean, Korea is the global hub. Uh, Japan, it's all about Web3 and how those traditional gaming companies become blockchain gaming. They, they see it. Um, so I think it's very gaming focused. You know, Europe still, I'm not, you know, seeing a lot. I mean, I think that from, you know, Europe is very bureaucratic. So maybe they're moving first with the regulatory. Uh, and I think in March, something is coming out from the EU. And then London, as you said, is is making progress. Um, but, you know, and I've said this before, each of the different regions around the world, they're really, you know, there are different use cases that excite them. Um, When you go to Paris for Blockchain Week, it's really the luxury goods companies trying to figure out NFTs, right? Um, It's not the same thing, as I said, it's more gaming in Asia, Um, Middle East to be, it's more about actually cryptocurrency and savings technology. And I think this new area, RWAs, real world uh, asset uh, tokenization, this is what we've all been waiting for for many, many years. And stable coins are actually, you know, and that's the first step in, in they're the argument. They tokenize
1: they're tokenized euro dollars, as far as I can see, you know, it's straightforward.
0: Right, exactly, and it, exactly. But it's now big, it's happened. It's it, it um, and and so I think that's sort of leading the way for tokenizing all different things. You know, uh, one of our companies, figure, you know, led by uh, I'm, I don't know if you remember Mike Cagney. He used to be in the yeah. Background. I do, and
1: I also saw him at your events, and just yes. super impressed. Tell people about what Figure are doing because I think it's really interesting.
0: Well, they're doing a whole a whole bunch of things. Um, you know, I, I I would say they they're they want to be the platform for all. Uh, Potential things of value. So, from funds, they've started to tokenize uh, funds, um, I think, you know, credit instruments. Um, their real focus is mortgages. So, they, they're going to do a few hundred million dollars in revenue this year in the HELOC world. So, they've become a prominent HELOC player. And they've actually, it's really interesting, we've been doing some more digging recently. Um, they've actually incorporated blockchain into the mortgage origination process the heloc origination process um and i have this chart maybe i don't know if I, I i probably can't share it but at different places along the the process of going from applying for one to actually uh, receiving one um they have you know i i would guess restructured they've restructured and injected um you know, their own uh, technology into the process such that you can save. I think it's something like they're saving two to three percentage points uh, on uh, every uh, HELOC that's done. And so I think, you know, they also have a white label product. So there are other mortgage players that are seeing what they're doing and they actually uh, are using figure prop. And so, I think mortgages are complex, and so they started with mortgages, and I think hopefully they would be the place that potentially all mortgages would be tokenized. And again, I, um, I think his vision is much bigger than that is to be a place you know where you have real estate. There's a great flywheel. I think I even have a shark here. Yeah, here it is. He's asset management, bankruptcy transactions, dApps, lending, asset-backed securities, fund solutions, crypto spot trading, derivatives trading. Anyway, all this is going to be on the figure markets platform. So, um, you know, there are too many guys uh, that um, have a track record to beat successfully. You know, he launched, founded SoFi and brought that uh, to its ultimate, uh, you know, public uh, listing. Um, and I think he's he's one of the few guys that can actually execute on a vision. It's it's not easy, um, and I, and there've been fits and starts. But you know, I would call it rewiring the plumbing of the yeah, that's right. The financial system. So
1: who do you think is going to go public first? Because obviously that's that's going to be another phase as we restructure. I mean. I mean, nobody's IPOing. The markets that we've got no
0: new fresh stuff in actual markets. Is it going to be Circle? You think? Well, Circle Kraken talked about it yesterday. Uh, we own both those companies in our portfolio. Um, I, I've been saying, you know, to prospective investors, look, um, I don't know very many things of the ninety-nine percent degree of of, of uh, probability, but I will tell you with the ninety-nine percent degree of probability five years from now. Coinbase will not be the only public, large, large public crypto Web3 blockchain business. It's it's impossible. And so, you know, we're investing in the companies that in two, three, four years, I think potentially could be public. Kraken, uh, eToro is another one we have. Um, Ledger, possibly. Derivate, potentially. Um, you know, these are companies making hundreds of millions in revenue. These are... And I think that's what the old world doesn't quite really realize or understand. They just think it's all venture. So it is surprising to me. We're still the only growth fund in the world that's exclusively and only focused on this area. I'm just an old time macro guy. I, I, I think they're coming. There's just no way I keep saying to you this that it, it continues to be the case. Part and parcel of this. Um, the, the, the normie world that the, the people call it, oh, the institutions are coming. I just think broad-based adoption uh, begins with the ETF, with the traditional players putting their stamp on it. But even a broader-based adoption comes with my companies beginning to go public. And it may be on NASDAQ, it may not be, maybe they end up being public in Singapore and London, I don't know but I don't think, you know, you can't go from the traditional world and traditional mindset of having equity at 60, 70% of your portfolio into DeFi, right? There has to be an intermediate intermediate step. And I think everyone is comfortable owning equity in businesses. And so that's one of the reasons by my, my whole concept with 10T and 1RT was to invest and 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 be the bridge from the traditional world to the new world. I never was planning to like compete in the new world. I can't compete with Polychain and Paradigm and Parify and you know Andreessen and I just don't have that level of technology expertise. I mean Mark Andreessen, for goodness sake, like forget about it. So, but the bridge between the old world and the new. I think, is 10 years. It takes 10 years to cross that bridge. And I think it's going to be done partially through the equity ownership. Capital will move in through the equity ownership of, of companies that are successful. Um, one of the things that's very
1: interesting is the Kraken team pinged me about that they had bought an equity exchange or traditional market exchange where they were buying one or a brokerage, whatever it was. That is so obvious where this is Going as well is sooner or later one of these Coinbase Kraken or and everybody else will end up just tokenizing equities and or just oh
0: yeah a- no I think that's one hundred percent that's already I want to say baked in the cake but you know when I think about this next bull phase you know past the happening into twenty five twenty six um, I think we come out of that you know certainly Bitcoin over 100,000, you know, Ethereum over three, 4,000. I think it's, it's not a very aggressive call. Um, but as the normie population moves towards like more full-scale adoption, um, you're gonna see everything, absolutely. This cycle is about those people moving in and you're gonna see everything tokenized i mean yeah literally...
1: everything everywhere all at once is the whole idea so here's a thing I... for you i did a bit of work yeah. on brokerages and their their customer base so you hear these big numbers about fidelity and schwab but most of that is the raa stuff yeah so you take the online stuff i.e., for the active population schwab fidelity tv ameritrade they're all about two to four million monthly active users interactive brokers 5 million users, 300,000 monthly active users. Then it goes to, then the next step is Robinhood, which is 22 million accounts with 12 million active. And then the thing that dwarfs all of them added together is Coinbase. It's 109 million accounts, of which at the depth of the bear market, 9 million were active. I was at Coinbase the other day in their offices. Uh, chatting to the head of asset management, I'm like, "Where if activity goes just to normal, not r- crazy levels, back to normal?" He's like, "Yeah, we'll be at 40 million active wallets." I mean, it's it's all people can't see it, but it's already dwarfed the traditional markets in terms of retail
0: participation. I, I I know. I yeah. Let me. Talk to it. is there was there a follow up? No, it's just the observation. Just just big big I know. It's the same thing when I say. Uh, To people that you know, there's two and a half trillion dollars of value already here They just can't believe like what's it doing there. I still get questions routinely Now they're proclamations for people there are no use cases. This is all still speculation Look, I I you know, I those people will be will be left behind Um, Yeah, I, I agree. It's already with us. It's already big um And look, Larry Sink is probably the most important comments of the year. Like, even forget about the ETF. Yes, that's great. But two years ago, he was saying this is all about fraud and money laundering. And then he changes in July and says, well, it's a global asset. You know, it's an important asset and they're going to get the ETF. So if you think about it, that's about as traditional a guy as there is out there. He completely reversed. Um, so I think it's just a matter of time, but you know, there's so much capital in the U S right. And the people at the very back of this train are U S institutional and also the big U S financial businesses. They already make so much money. Like look at Blackstone, right? It's a trillion dollars. They don't, they don't care about, I mean, that's just their, their AUM, they don't, you know, they're not really caring about crypto. I, you know, they're not focused on it. Uh, they should own the whole space already, right? Like the companies that I own, they should own all of them already. And you know, but you know, when you but have that's a the business, gift of the opportunity, business, what's the point? Like I, you know, if you already have success in your area, um, but like I don't know, if I'm Steve Schwartz, maybe I wake up one day and I, I say, look, I'm gonna put you know, 500, I'm going to put $10 billion here and I'm going to have 50 people in this area move over to that area. But they're still not there. Um, I, I, I just, but now this phase, I think at the end of this phase, everyone will be there at the 25, 26, maybe not everyone, but I think it's going to be that my companies, many of them potentially, in you know 25 and beyond will start to become public and then you get the brokerage reports you get the you know the the education uh gets ramped up and that's really what we're talking about you and i talking about this back and forth i mean it just seems like you know we're not on cnbc or maybe you are i I, i'm not i'm not on the the news or anything like that so I still think you have like the FT and the Journal and all of these guys, New York they're way behind. Bloomberg is, is nowhere in terms of their understanding. So I think that's all coming in this cycle. So final
1: question for you. Do you think that the structure of the cycle changes or does it remain the same? So let's which, say- Which cycle? Know, the crypto cycle. Is it going to be as volatile- or is it going to be somewhat more smoothed by the sheer number of people being involved?
0: Well, so I think the men, everything's
1: cyclical, right? We live in a cyclical yeah. world. We know that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The venture, the venture side will continue to have all this volatility. But if you look even at our businesses, um, the volatility of earnings uh, uh, revenues is not comparable to the space. So as an example, Cracking and don't quote me 100% on this. In 2020, they did 200 million in revenue. Then they did a billion plus in 21. Then I think they dropped down to around 522. And this year they'll probably be 600 or more. I mean, so look the volatility there. I mean, yes, it dropped down during the bear phase. We're still up three x from you know 200, but you know, much easier to sit with. Um, you know, I think a business that's producing revenue, and so it's just like a bond, a bond uh, that ha- like a zero coupon bond that has no cash flow is more volatile than you know a high coupon bond that's paying you, you know, whatever it is, or a, a, a lower credit uh, treasury um, you know instrument, right? So I think that the tail end. So Bitcoin will be less volatile in these next cycles, and but the look—it's impossible to think that there are only going to be two or three protocols that achieve network effect, right? Arguably, and I don't want to get into this now, but arguably, like Ripple, which I don't really understand, is a forty billion dollar uh, asset, and then the company is worth somewhere between five and ten billion. So and they've been around for 10 years. So ordinarily you would say, Ripple's achieved network effect. You don't hear many people really talking about how great Ripple is, but they're, they've been around. Ripple, if it was gonna go to zero, it should have gone to zero. Why hasn't it gone to zero? I don't know. We haven't done the work on the business. We probably should have. Um, my point is, is that the stuff that's at the early stages of invention, the pre-public protocols that are all Programmers are working on. Um, that's going to stay a small little. It'll go up 100x and then go down 99%. That is always going to ha- That's going to continue. But as these uh, uh, cryptocurrencies achieve network effect, the volatility goes down. Period. And I think that um, the businesses are sort of on the lower volatile uh, volatility at the end. Because they it. have cash flow. Yeah, because they have cash flow. I mean, the protocols have cash flow. Ethereum, um, I think you probably saw, you know, was the fastest to ten billion in revenue, or the second fastest uh, business, if you would call it that, um, you know, of all time, right? So I, um, but it's it's not the kind of revenue that traditional investors are used to. So uh, I think that like our space is going to just explode. And um, as more capital comes in from the traditional world, this is the adoption cycle. And
1: the other thing, the final thought from me is that one thing people don't realize, you obviously realize, most people don't realize this is the only global homogenous asset class. Yeah. It's the same in Brazil as it is in India, as it is in Silicon Valley, as it is in London. That shows you the TAM is larger than anything else.
0: It's, more than hundreds of trillions, and I tell anybody who's sort of under thirty that you know, if you an entrepreneur, you're interested in building wealth, this is the space. Figure out something to do. There are myriad, think a number of things that you can do. Meaning that even if you're a let's say you want to be a salesperson, okay, I have a bunch of companies that need great salespeople. You have to understand the product, etc. If you're interested in marketing, if you're interested in uh, programming development, and this is whatever your skill set is, it's needed. I'm just telling in this space. We, I, we, we have board seats on eleven of the twenty-four companies we're invested in, and so like we really now this is sort of the next level of business for us. Our next level of focus is that we are actually getting involved in helping. Our companies operate and you might like laugh a little bit like Dan going from macro PM to rolling up the sleeves like talking to management about doing X Y and Z you might be saying "Well, what do I know about management but if you focus enough and you have the right team around you I've really built a phenomenal uh, team you have five partners um, I've got six analysts now and we're 17 uh, people and we really have that skill set, and um, you know, to be able to go in and actually with companies that aren't doing so well, we, we can actually protect our downside a little bit um, by you know injecting some, I guess, strategic and governance help. Um, what, one one thing I would say, and this is different again, maybe we should have talked about this earlier, but. Um, what's really interesting about some of the companies we own is that because they're private deals, we actually are able to structure them much differently. Like the companies we need when we, you know, that we have, it's not the same thing. It's not similar to owning Coinbase Coinbase. You can own common equity, right? You're common. And so, you know, you can push it uh, on the screen and you can see it trade live. Um, but the reality is, is in half the businesses we own, we have liquidation preferences. So we actually own calls with embedded puts, which is very different. Our downside in many of even these growth businesses uh, is protected. And so that's a whole new area that I- I've moved into, that we've moved into, um, you know, that I, I never would have been involved with you know, as a, a macro guy years ago. Um, so that's a, a skill set that you know, the, team, the team has. And uh, yes, there's illiquidity, but there's also quite a lot of protection. Um, so that's why, that's why I, I would respond to Stevie that uh, I'm not getting my head handed to me because we have liquidation preferences everywhere. Um, and all sorts of other rights that we've embedded uh, into the
1: uh, portfolio. Fabulous, Dan. Look, let's see as we kick off. As you said, this is just the second second innings. It starts to get exciting. Then it usually pauses for a bit. And then it all starts to go really bananas. So it's all to play for. And I think we both agree it's an everything, everywhere, all at once. So it the it'll key be interesting. is
0: not to focus on anything else. Really. That's right. You take your eye off the ball here. You know, I think it was uh, it, over a certain period of time, if you miss the 10 biggest days in Bitcoin, your return is like de minimis or whatever it is. You have to be in, committed, long. And the only way to have conviction to do that is to do all the work and
1: stay focused. I agree. and You know, I put it. Out, I put it in GMI, I think it was July, and it was just titled, Don't Fuck This Up. It's yes. like just, yes, just don't fuck it up. It's easy. Yeah, just don't get in your own way and do stupid things. Just focus, as you say. Don't take excess risk, and ride it. You'll be okay. Exactly. All right, my friend. Great to catch we'll up as you. ever. Yeah, yeah. and uh, we'll. I'm sure we'll check in, in like six months' time to figure out where we are in this whole thing again. Absolutely. So, as ever, another great conversation. With Dan, this whole crypto thesis of mine and his is all part of my exponential age idea. And I think those of you who are subscribers to Real Vision, Pro Macro, or GMI, understand the journey that we're going down, and also the new product, the X, uh, Exponentialist, covers this as part of the broader technological adoption. But when it comes down to finance. Meets technology in an explosive opportunity. This is the big one. This is the big daddy. So take as much time as you can to learn about these things. At Real Vision, we have the Real Vision Crypto Academy, and you really should. I'll put the link below. You really should spend the three hundred and fifty dollars, whatever it is, to educate yourself to not fuck this up. The opportunity is too big. We all make mistakes. So learn from great people. And that course is run by two ex-finance people who are also at the heart of crypto investing and NFTs, Ovi and Mando. That $350 is is well worth it in what it's going to do for you in your journey. And if you're further in your journey, then you can get some of my writings in Real Vision Pro Macro, which I think will really help you. This journey is about knowledge. It's the accumulation of knowledge and applying that knowledge. That's what Dan does. That's what I do. And I urge you to do the same. Anyway, see you next time.